Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. There are times in life when we get to a point where we may have a medical condition that has a, that has a life expectancy that is not as long as we would wish. And when that happens, both we and our loved ones often look to get some extra help towards what we call end-of-life care. And one of the ways that this has been met is by establishing something called hospice. Hospice is defined as an organization that helps provide a lot of additional services that help people transition to this end-of-life type of care. Now, it is not the only thing they do. And today I'm joined by Sean Reeks, the Director of Business Development at Islands Hospice. And we're going to be talking today about supportive care, concurrent care, hospice care, what would define something where someone may want to look into these services and what sorts of additional things are available for those who do choose to go down this route. Now, of course, this is not necessarily a topic that everyone would be applicable for, but this is something important for all of us to know about. For anybody who hasn't yet established something we call advanced directives, that's something we're going to talk about on a future show, but it is important that we think about what our wishes would be should we ever have a terminal condition for which we may not be expected to survive. So I want to thank you, Sean, for joining me today. Absolutely. Hi. Now, you've been in hospice in the area for almost eight years yes. with Islands Hospice. Is that right? That's correct. I've been with Islands for nearly five years. I'm originally from Oklahoma. did some work there for three years, but been with Islands for about five years. Yeah. Now, hospice, we all have this, maybe this vague idea as to what it is. Physicians may sometimes feel a little uncomfortable bringing mm -hmm. it up, mm -hmm. but how would you define what a hospice organization does? So in my course of working in hospice, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of families across the island. And before answering your question more directly, I want to start with just a few pieces. And these are things I tell families at our initial consultations for which I've had many. I like to tell families first and foremost that uh, there's a myth that hospice is a place, that if you elect hospice services, that that means you're going to be taken away to some type of institution. But the reality is that hospice is a service, and it's a service provided wherever a person lives. So nursing home, care home, foster home, assisted living. Uh, many of our patients live in their own home. In fact, I recently met with a lady from Manoa, and she said, you know, I know my dad needs hospice, but he's not going to leave his house. And I said, no, a lot of our patients live in their own homes. So hospice is a service, number one. And number two, the number two thing I like to tell families uh, from the start of our conversation is that uh, there's a belief that hospice care is costly, when in reality, hospice services are covered 100% by most insurances, including Medicare and Medicaid. So services are not going to cost families a single dollar. So start with those things. Now, what are hospice services? And those who know me know that I could probably spend all day answering that question. But hospice is a service designed to help those who are coping with a life-limiting illness. Our focus is comfort quality of life, pain and symptom management. Our focus is not just a physical, a person's physical well-being, but their emotional and spiritual well-being as well. 
And hospice patients can expect to be seen by a highly skilled team of nurses, nurse aides, social workers, spiritual care providers. Care is still overseen by a doctor of their choosing. In fact, Dr. Kozak, you've probably overseen hospice care for patients. Many of them, yes, absolutely. And it is a patient's uh, right to choose which doctor oversees their care. In addition to visits from nurses, aides, social workers, spiritual care providers, we can help out with things like medical equipment, medications, medical supplies. But above all of those things, and most importantly, is helping families with peace of mind as their loved ones or they themselves, again, are coping with um, a life-limiting illness. Well, and that's a good way to sort of bust some of the myths. Sometimes yeah. we do that on the show. And the first one is, is it a place? No, not necessarily. It right. is a service. Mm-hmm. So these are services that may not be something that people would receive under other circumstances. But the way I like to think about it is that it's sort of a blanket. It's mm-hmm. it's a way to provide comfort in a situation where you're bringing attention to the individual and trying to keep them comfortable. Correct. When we talk about some of the types of referrals that come to hospice, it often strikes me that national statistics suggest that people get referred very late in the course of their care. So some of the conditions that you might be referred to hospice for, what do you see folks that you interact with? What are their medical conditions? And then we'll talk about the timing of referral. Sure, yeah. So I think when we hear hospice, we think a lot of us who may not work in the industry or who haven't had an experience, we tend to think of late-stage cancer diagnosis or uh, perhaps HIV-AIDS. Um, but the reality is is that there are quite a few qualifying diagnoses for hospice care, not limited to, um, we said cancer, COPD, CHF, uh, end-stage kidney disease, liver disease, ALS, uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Um, those are j- uh, so uh, CVA stroke. Uh, um, That's a long list. It, it is, so. and, and the truth is, is that it's even longer than that. Those are sort of like the the main diagnoses that we see patients for. I hope I didn't miss anything, but as you can see, it's not so much just a cancer diagnosis anymore. Those who are receiving hospice services have a plethora of of diagnoses. Well, and I guess the common theme is that they have a terminal illness Mm -hmm. and they're not expected to be able to survive more than approximately about six months. And that's kind of a predictive thing, and that's always difficult. You know, as a, as a physician, it's hard for me to say, yeah, I know exactly when someone's right. going to go. <laughs> so there is sort of this general sense of, is this something that is appropriate for the individual? And depending on their medical circumstance, under certain conditions, there is care if you want to continue to treat your primary illness. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But when someone enters hospice, do you find that we are referring people too late in the course of their illness? Because I'm just going to throw out there, I think the answer is yes, too often we are not putting in a referral sooner. And there may be some reasons why, you know, the family members may not be ready, the individual themselves may not be ready. But I think there's also a lot of fear about the concept of giving up. And I often think that if we just took away the stigma of that Mm -hmm. and said instead, 
peaceful passing, mm-hmm. that it would add a little bit less of a sense of of letting go of a struggle and more of a sense of opening up to a different level of awareness of your disease process and acceptance. Sure. So, oh, I love talking about this stuff. I think you're absolutely right. I think that patients, um, they are referred to hospice too late. And I do think that it comes from a place of, of fear, and, and that's unique to each uh, individual. Perhaps it's the fear of the unknown. Perhaps it's the fear of losing uh, control. Perhaps a person feels like they have unfinished affairs. Um, but the reality is, is here's what's fascinating. There is that delay to make a referral to hospice from providers. And a lot of that comes from perhaps the provider having a fear themselves of having a conversation or starting that conversation. Perhaps they feel like they're giving up on patients and families, which those of us who work in hospice, we know, like, we don't view it that way. But I I think what's important to mention, what's so fascinating about this, this disconnect is that we tend to get referrals late because, quote, families don't want to hear about it. But patients and families tell us all the time, so frequently, that they wish they would have known about hospice services sooner, that they wish they would have gotten services started sooner. And the reason I mention that is because there is a disconnect. We get these late referrals. And I'll tell you, late referrals are not ideal for a hospice team. You know, we're able to give uh, families and patients so much more support and so much more of the benefit when we have time to, to, to build a relationship with the family to understand what their needs are. But back to kind of what I was saying, there's this disconnect. And so, you know, I know we have a lot of listeners today, and um, some might be doctors and uh, some might be neighbors, but just know that perhaps there is this this fear of starting that conversation with your patients, but yet patients and families tell us time and time again they wish they would have known about services sooner. And that's part of what we're talking about today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And when we come back, I'm going to continue this great discussion with Sean Reeks, the Director of Business Development at Islands Hospice. And we're going to talk some more about what are some of the barriers that we could potentially overcome with hospice referrals, in addition to some of the other types of care that hospice organizations can provide. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Sean Reeks. He is from Islands Hospice, and we're talking today about what is the role of hospice and why is this an important conversation to have. Right before the break, we talked a little bit about the late referrals, and that sometimes is multifactorial. It may be providers not putting in a referral. It may be families not ready to have that discussion. You know, I often find that the middle ground is a great place to live in, so I have actually in my practice, put in hospice referrals and said to families, this is not a commitment. This is an opportunity for you to meet with the people from the team and find out if they have something to offer you. 
So it's not committing to making a decision right this minute. It's committing to learn more. Now, mm-hmm. that does kind of throw you guys under the bus a bit when you walk in and you're like, what do you mean you haven't decided? But I think that's a great way to start and initiate that conversation so that people can kind of feel a little more comfortable. I always think knowledge is power. And the more knowledge that we give someone, the greater the chances are they'll make an educated decision about what's best for them. Absolutely. You are so speaking my language, it's not even funny. But first of all, a referral made to Islands Hospice, let's say we meet with a family and they're not quite ready. There is no such thing as a waste of our time when it comes to having conversations with families about hospice. Whether they're ready or not, we understand that sometimes it's about planting seeds with families. They might not be ready today. They might not be ready tomorrow or next week, but we never pass up, a, pass up on the opportunity to meet with families and have that conversation. Just like you said, no pressure. You don't have to go this route, but you have a right to know what benefits are available to you. And so frequently we meet with families and do what we call kind of info visits where we understand what their needs are. We explain services. They might not be ready just yet, and that's okay. That's a part of our mission, and it starts with that info visit. And so I tell folks that if you, if you want to seek information about hospice services, uh, an info visit is a great place to start. So just so you know, we're always happy to meet with families, regardless of whether or not they're ready for services or not, because then just like you said, it's like you're reading my mind. Uh, families can then digest that information and make informed decisions. And that's really what it's about is making sure that someone feels comfortable, but also giving them the opportunity to learn. Now, you mentioned that there is a team. That team includes a nurse, mm-hmm. a nurse's aide, social worker, spiritual counselor, in addition to a physician, that people get to choose who the mm-hmm. physician is that follows them along the course of their care. What are some of the roles of the other team members, and how often might they interact with a patient who has chosen to enroll in hospice? Sure, yeah. So uh, our patients, of course, every one of our patients has an individualized and unique plan of care um, based on their individual needs. But if we're speaking on average generally here, um, our patients are going to be seen by a nurse a couple of times a week in RN. When that nurse visits, he or she is going to check vital signs, assess for pain, assess for symptoms, make sure the family has peace of mind, provide ongoing education about a person's disease progression. Um, Each time before that nurse leaves, I think their goal is to ensure that our patients are comfortable and that the family has peace of mind. Because hospice, we talk a lot about our patients, but we're also there for our families, the families we're caring for. So the nurse is there, the nurse case manager manager is there to oversee the care um, in conjunction with the doctor, of course, and provide education, pain management, symptom management, uh, disease education. They're, and they do so much more than that. I could, again, do like a special on just the nursing component. Also, our patients are seen by nurse aides, certified nursing aides, who provide personal care needs generally a couple of times a week. So assistance with uh, grooming and bathing, nail trimming, um, uh, hair washing, um, and our patients are seen by that nurse aide a couple of times a week. And I got to say, our nurse aides 
are the heart and soul of hospice. They have a relationship with our families that we care for and our patients that we care for that is sort of unparalleled. And so I got to give major kudos to our, our aides. Um, so personal care needs. Then uh, social work services. So all of our patients have a social worker on their case. And um, the best way to describe our social workers is re- education, because there's a huge educational component to hospice. That's, that's such a huge piece, right? But the social workers are there to uh, identify what other resources are available in the community. Do we need to assist with care home placement? Can we help with VA benefits? Um, it, it, what, what else is available? Um, Meals on Wheels, is that an option for this patient? Uh, and the list of resources goes on and on and on, and they're like encyclopedias for resources. And then our spiritual care providers. And again, this is in accordance with a patient and family's beliefs. Uh, the, the, a lot of the aspects of hospice are optional. And I won't get into that too much, but like Medicare says you have to be seen by a nurse. The aid is optional. The social worker is optional. We encourage families to utilize these services. But so the spiritual care piece in accordance with the patient and family's beliefs and um, we're just there to delve into that realm of their needs because, again, hospice, body, mind, and spirit. A person is more than just their physical well-being, right? And it's so interesting because patients sometimes say, well, I don't need a spiritual care provider. I'm not religious. I like to meditate. That's okay. If that's your thing, if that's your way to connect with whatever your higher power is, again, in accordance with your beliefs, uh, we're not trying to convert anybody or anything like that. It's it's what do you believe? Where are you at with your spiritual uh, realm of things? They're amazing. They do amazing work. Um, in addition, so so that's the that's the core team: the nurse, the social worker, the nurse aide, and the spiritual care provider. We also have a team of uh, volunteers uh, who can provide companionship, different services like pet therapy or aromatherapy, or just music. Um, singing some hymns with some patients or playing an instrument or helping an, a, a, a patient um, reconnect with their their um, their musical side by playing a, tra- a tambourine. And there, you could probably do a whole show on the benefits of music and dementia Alzheimer's patients. It's fascinating. I do a little singing at nursing homes, and I have nursing home staff tell me that, um, you know, Mrs. So-and-so has been mostly nonverbal for months and months, but she knew every word to that song. It's fascinating. That's a whole other thing. I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert, but there's some awesome things going on with music therapy. So nurse, nurse aid, social worker, spiritual care. In addition to those things, and I don't know if you want to cut me off, but things like medical equipment and medical supplies and medications and peace of mind. So often those that are caring for um, a loved one who is declining, they don't know what to do, what to ask. And our team is like that beacon, that that beacon of education and support to ensure that when the family has those fears of the unknowns as it pertains to their loved ones, we're there to say, what you're feeling is okay. We're here to walk this walk with you. Call us if you need to. We're here for you. Well, and I think often having the experience of going down this path allows you to educate someone about what to expect, but also be a partner in that transition for their loved one Mm -hmm. or for the individual themselves. 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the levels of care in addition to hospice that are also covered through some of our local insurers and what that means in helping to provide care for those we love or even ourselves if we have diagnoses or conditions that require a little extra attention. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sean Reeks from Islands Hospice. And we're talking today about what are some of the myths that people may have about what it means to enroll in hospice, what are some of the services that are provided, and what are some of the other options that are available if people have certain diagnoses. Now, right before the break, we were talking about the care team that is involved in helping to provide this blanket of support for both patients and their families for whatever their care needs may be. And there are often people who take advantage of all of those services and some who just choose what particular types of things would be most applicable for themselves or their loved ones. So it is almost a choice that someone can make what aspects of that care that they choose to receive. Mm-hmm. There's also some situations where someone may not necessarily have that six months or less terminal designation, but they may actually still benefit from some of the services that are available. Now, here in the islands, we have a couple of insurance companies that have provided some additional service and care. What are some of those programs? Because I often think that that's a great transition if someone still wants to treat their primary illness. They're not yet ready to stop, whether it be chemotherapy or medications or whatever the situation might be for them. But they're ready to get some extra assistance. What are those programs about? Sure, yeah. So it's true. Not everybody's quite ready for for full-on hospice. And there are some amazing programs uh, here on the island that are sort of like uh, somebody described it as um, uh, maybe a bus stop or two before needing hospice. And I appreciate that because it's appropriate, I think, to, to use that expression. Not quite there heading that way, but need some extra services. And so uh, one of them is the HMSA Supportive Care Program. Uh, and there's certain criteria you have to meet to, to be on that program, and it's certain HMSA plans. I would say give us a call if you have a question. Um, but it's amazing. It's an amazing program because it's so similar to hospice in nature, but f- it's for those who are still perhaps seeking disease-modifying treatments. For example, chemotherapy, radiation. Maybe they plan on seeing a specialist about a procedure. Maybe they need to get you know, a drain placed or something like that. And so it's very similar to hospice. Like we said, the nursing, the aid, the social work, the spiritual care, the equipment, it's the, and the education. But it's for those that are still kind of pursuing disease-modifying treatments, pursuing um, different types of uh, consultations with specialists. Similarly, there is UHA Concurrent Care, which I think is an outstanding program and a model for uh, what I hope many future programs become. That's a whole other thing. Uh, it's a wonderful program. It's, and, you know, uh, there's obviously specifics, but 
by and large, it's nearly identical to hospice services, but there's not the restrictions in that a person can't be seeking certain treatments or perhaps they're still, um, maybe they're getting IV hydration in the ER or maybe they're, they have paracentesis treatments. Some of those things on hospice, the goal becomes comfort and, and some of those things tend to stop some of those treatments. It's always case by case, but UHA concurrent care, similar to supportive care in that it's, it's far reaching. There's not a lot of limit, uh, there's not a lot of limitations on what types of treatments a person can be pursuing. Well, and I think, as you mentioned, it's sort of several bus stops. It's almost like hospice light. Here we are. Mm-hmm. We're going to provide you these extra services, but we're not going to require that you're no longer pursuing other treatments. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some people think, well, why would you stop treatments if they're working? That's kind of the idea, is that if your treatments still have not yet been decided if they're working or not, then concurrent care or supportive care might be appropriate. If that treatment that you're doing no longer provides you the type Type of therapeutic benefit you were expecting, it doesn't work, then you want to have some of these other resources available. Mm-hmm. You mentioned medical equipment, and that mm-hmm. one intrigues me because mm-hmm. a lot of folks don't know what we're talking about. They think, yeah. oh, it's just a hospital bed in the living room, but there's a bit yeah. more to it. What do you consider to be medical equipment? So for our patients on, let's say, hospice care or supportive care or concurrent care, and it's always individualized and tailored to their unique plan of care. But common things we're providing, like you said, hospital bed, but things like a walker, a wheelchair, a bedside commode, um, oxygen, very commonly. Sometimes it's a Hoyer lift if it's appropriate. Shower chair, uh, uh, toilet riser. Um, we had a gentleman who needed a cane. You know, I think people think, oh, if you're going on hospice, that means you're bed bound and uh, death is imminent. And the reality is, is that we kind of want to move to a place where hospice is about quality of life and not so much focused on how many days you have left, but making those days quality. And so there's a lot of medical equipment we can provide. And one thing I want to mention is with hospice, if you are appropriate for hospice, clinic, clinically eligible based on Medicare's guidelines or your insurance's guidelines, let's say we met you this morning and you want hospice, your goals are hospice, we can generally have medical equipment delivered same day or within 24 hours. We're able to cut through some of that red tape, as you probably know, getting things preauthorized. Yeah. And <laughs> within the same day or yeah. the next day is pretty incredible pretty cool. in yeah. the medical world. Absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like they're fast-tracked. It is. That's exactly right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens if somebody is enrolled early Mm -hmm. and maybe they start off with either concurrent or supportive care, they transition to hospice, Mm -hmm. and their disease condition stabilizes, and they start getting towards that, you know, five- or six-month time, Mm -hmm. and nothing's changed, so they're stable. Mm -hmm. How do we handle that? Yeah. So I will say that just so folks know... um, you can remain on hospice for as long as you uh, remain clinically appropriate for hospice. And we follow Medicare's guidelines, and we're in compliance with that. And we have patients on service anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of years. Um, but and, and they remain appropriate for services. They are eligible for serv- services through that entire time. And just because services exceed six months doesn't mean that uh, it's not covered. We provide services as long as a person's appropriate for services. Now, to your point... It is true that patients come on service sometimes, and they do improve. Um, and what we do is we we, re- we reevaluate at um, uh, each benefit period at 90 days, 90 days, and then every 60 days, and that's all confusing and boring. But uh, 
oftentimes whenever we're doing that reevaluation, it has it indicates the the reevaluation indicates that a person has improved and they're no longer hospice appropriate and they uh, will, would be discharged back to what we call usual care. It happens more times than you might think. A person has a hospitalization, aspiration pneumonia. Uh, they present away in the hospital. They get home. They kick that infection. They improve. And so you can graduate off of hospice services. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Yeah. If you get better, and it may be that you need you needed the extra support <clears throat> temporarily, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily something to be now. That that's a good thing, I would think. Sure. If somebody graduates yeah. and starts to have some improvement or stabilization, that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, I I agree with you on the need for earlier referral. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that our education today has helped people to recognize that. I hope so. The referral is not a commitment; it is information. Yes. And that way, both patients and their providers can have this discussion a little bit more in an open basis and consider some of the services that are available. I want to thank Sean Reeks from Islands Hospice and I want to thank our engineer David Chong today. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You can go to hawaiipublicradio.org and follow the links to listen to our podcast. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.